Hey, it is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Wouldn't you agree? Hey? No, it's not. I just set you guys up as a sermon illustration. Now, don't be embarrassed, because today the message is about old forms of thinking and old behavioral patterns. And the idea, you're asking, how did you set us up? Well, if you recall, the Old Testament, they had a tabernacle that they built, a big tent, and in the tabernacle there were different kind of uh, gradations of closeness to God, and at the very back was the Holy of Holies, where the Spirit of God dwelt on top of a box where the Ten Commandments were stored. And then when they got into Israel, they built a temple, and the, the temple was the same outline as the tabernacle, and God's presence was in there. But when the Old Testament era ended and Jesus came, he ushered in the age of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit no longer would dwell in the Holy of Holies, in the house of God. He would dwell and take up residency in our bodies. So there's nothing special about this building in terms of God's presence other than us. We are each a little brick of God's building, and we come together, we bring the presence of God into this building. Now, you may be thinking, well, Chris, you're just kind of theological nitpicking. But I think that our old patterns of thought and and behaviors have some significant implications in our lives. Now, I've just started to think like this and and catch myself. About six months ago, I was up on the platform, and I actually said, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. And then after, I I thought, did I actually say that? I mean, that's improper thinking. And you might think, well, it's just nitpicking, but listen to this. Our view on this issue, and this is just one little issue. We're going to get into, into some more has implications on our view of the relationship between the Holy Spirit and ourselves. See, if we kind of view this as the house of God and this is where God dwells at West Highland Church on Garth Street, right? That skews our whole view of the Holy Spirit living in us. You are the house of God. And as you go out from here into your communities and into society, you carry the presence of God with you where you go. Huge implication. Our view of evangelism. If we see this as some special building where God's presence dwells, well, we become a building-centered people. We invite people to the building to experience God, when in reality, we are the building of God, and when they encounter us, and especially when they encounter us in communities, they experience the presence of God. Our evangelism is then us going out from here, not us inviting people to a building. It even has implications on practical things like our budget. Where do we allot our money? Now, there's nothing wrong with having a nice building. In fact, I quite enjoy having a nice building. But it does impact our budget. Where do we allot money? How do we spend money? Is it spent just here, or do we spend it out there too? And so there's many other ways in which we're stuck in old patterns of thought and behavior. And this is nothing new. For as you'll see in the passage as we move to, through today, it was an issue that was also prevalent in Jesus' day. That's what the old wine and the new wine and the old cloth and the new cloth is all about. So as we walk through this, I'll kind of point some of this stuff out to you. But before we go there, I just want to kind of give you a quick 
thumbnail sketch of the Old Testament because I think it's so important to understand kind of how the thinking of the Pharisees and that sort of thing. So you remember Abraham? God made a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is an agreement, right? A, a partnership between a greater king and a lesser king. And he said, I'm gonna give you a land, this land that's kind of at the center of the Middle East in between Egypt to the south and Babylon to the north. Center stage on the world at the time. And you're going to be a channel of blessing to all the nations. Now, as the, as the, um, the covenants go, they become more narrow in scope, more specific as we move through the Bible. We, then we get to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses, the agreement with Moses. And he says three things to Moses. You're going to be a treasured possession as a people. You're gonna have a special relationship with me. You're going to be a holy people. And I'm gonna give you a, 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 a law to follow to make you holy and different from the people that you'll be living around. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, he said to Moses. Priests are meant to be people who intermediate between those who don't know God and those who do. A kingdom, a whole nation of priests. And so they're supposed to be intermediates between the nations around them. And that's kind of a fulfillment of, of the promise to Abraham to be a channel of blessing to all nations. So three biggies for the Israelites were the land promised to Abraham, the law given to Moses, and then the temple where the presence of God would dwell. And they didn't do too good at following the law. They didn't do uh, too well at being a, a, priest, a priest to the other nations around them. And so God kicks them out of the land. He exiles them. They go away. They, they, they do their time, so to speak. They come back to the land, but they're still, in their mind, they're still in political and spiritual exile. There's occupiers in the land, the Romans. The temple, God's not, the temple system's not working. God's presence is not back in the temple. And their way of thinking here is the reason that they're still in spiritual and political exile is because God has not finished disciplining them for their sin yet. And so the way out of this in the Jewish mind is strict moral purity. They got food laws, they got ceremonial laws. They have separation from things that are unclean, especially sinners, right? Stay away from sinners because that will contaminate you and it will slow down the return of God and, end, and ending our exile. <clears throat> and they think when we've been good enough, God will return. So if you'd open up your Bibles with me, I'm gonna go down here and get my water that I forgot, uh, to Luke 5. I'd like you to follow along. We're just gonna walk through this passage and uh, see how Jesus challenges these old thought patterns. Oh, water's good, isn't it? <clears throat> So Jesus comes onto the scene and he starts to build a community. And he's building a community of 12 disciples. That's interesting, 12 disciples represents 12 tribes. This is the new Israel. He's going to fulfill, to do what Israel was supposed to do by gathering this new community around him. And he starts with some unusual people. He invites Levi who's a tax collector. Now tax collectors are never popular, are they? Do you like tax collectors? But in Jesus' day, it was even worse. Tax collectors were given to dishonesty and abuse of authority and power. Listen to what one commentator says about tax collectors. He says, as a group, they were despised as snoops, corrupt, and the social equivalent of pimps and informants. 
That's pretty harsh language. But it gives you kind of a sense of how tax collectors were viewed. And what's worse, they were working for the Romans who were seen as occupiers and slowing down the return of God. So they were in league with the Romans, preventing God from ending the exile in its totality. But God, Jesus calls Levi, he says, follow me, and Levi got up, he left everything, and followed Jesus. This is a picture of repentance. Repentance is really just a change of attitude toward Jesus, which then results in the change of one's direction of life. And so he responds to Jesus' call. And I love the first thing that Levi does after Jesus calls him, he gets up, he follows him, is he throws a party. Isn't this a picture of the kingdom? He throws a party. And these people start eating with him. It's interesting also that, that Levi, the people that he invites, are just like him. It's other tax collectors. Probably because he couldn't make friends with other people because nobody would have anything to do with them. So it's all the other tax collectors that come and they're having this big feast. Levi's heart is he wants his friends to encounter Jesus, to know Jesus. And let me say, in, in, in Jesus' time eating, and it's the same today in many other parts of the world, was like a coded message. It communicated something. What did it communicate? It communicated things like inclusion. Things like boundaries. You can come in, you can't. It communicated friendship. It communicated uh, shared life. Intimacy, kinship, unity. When I was in Poland, I was sharing a verse with a, a Muslim. I, I, I bumped into a Muslim in Poland, which is very... Um, unusual, and I'm reading him the verse from Revelation 3.20, Jesus, Jesus says, I'm at the door, I'm knocking, if you open the door, I will come in and eat with you, and you with me. And I said to him, what does this mean to you? And he goes, well, in my culture, eating together is a sign of friendship. If you have, if you have a wrong, if you, a disagreement, or you're at odds with one another, the way that you show that that is over is you have a meal together. And I was like, Wow. That's beautiful. I learned something from this guy that day in Poland that, that eating is a coded message. It, it says something. It's not just like we think of it. Eating is, is big. So Jesus, what is, what is he doing here? He's challenging the old thought patterns and behaviors of the old way of doing things. The old way was to, say, to stay separate from people who don't know God, to stay away from sinners, because that would contaminate you and make you unclean. But Jesus wants to be among those who are far from God. You know, I think uh, in the evangelical church, which we're a part of, we do things a little different than Jesus would. I think what we do is, and we don't communicate this verbally, but I think we do communicate this, is that in order for one to belong, they must believe certain things and behave in certain ways in order to belong. Right? We've put it backwards. Jesus says, no, you belong, and then you come to believe certain things and behave in certain ways. Now, don't confuse belonging with approval. I'm not saying that you approve of someone's sinful behavior. You say, oh, that's okay, you know, I agree with you, that's right. But belonging means that I, ac I accept you, I love you. I'm willing to, to be intimate with you, I'm willing to share my life with you, I'm willing to associate with you and then you can change as you experience me. 
You know, I've shared many times with my friend Ragnar. He had a huge impact on my life. He invited me into his home to live with him for a whole year. And my lifestyle was way out of way. I was the antithesis of his. I was living a sinful, rebellious lifestyle, and Ragnar let me live with him. I belonged in his home. And then, the amazing thing that happened is I started to believe different things. And then I started to behave in different ways. You see, the power of belonging is huge. We're hardwired to belong, to be in community with one another. And we don't do that very well as an evangelical community. We set things up in such a way that you have to believe certain things and dress certain ways and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then you can belong, right? Whereas our doors should be wide open. Hey, you can belong, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, you will start to believe and behave differently. What else can we learn from, from Levi? Well, Levi is hospitable. He opens up his home and invites a whole bunch of people in to come and to meet Jesus. I think, as a Western culture, we stink at this. Seriously. I've been, you know, in missions trips, I go to different parts of the world, and they put us to shame in terms of hospitality. And people here who are from different parts of the world get what I'm saying, right? How many times have you had someone who doesn't know Christ in your home in the last six months? Ah, we got COVID, right? I guess you could say bit of a problem there. But pre-COVID, when's the last time you had somebody in your home that didn't know Jesus and you just opened the doors up for hospitality and said, come on in, we want to just hang out with you. It doesn't mean you have to do a big, huge meal. Maybe you're having pierogies that night. You cook a little extra, they have pierogies too. Celebration. I don't think we do that good a job at that either. There's nothing in my mind worse than a solemn Christian we have everything to be jazzed about, don't we? Excited. It's a party. Jesus, our eternal life. Right? Well, Levi gets it. The first thing he does. And I, you know, as, when I first came to faith, I had that zeal in me. Oh, it's like every, you know, it's all new and everybody wants, you want to tell everybody. And it starts to wane as you stay in the, in the Christian bubble too long. It starts to suck the life out of you. We have to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to revive us, to give us that passion and that zeal for Jesus again, right? That other people would know him. There's people out there drowning while we're in the lifeboat and we're watching them. But he throws a celebration and invites all his sinful friends to come over and to meet Jesus. Inclusion. Levi demonstrates that. He's inclusive. Come on. I just repented. I changed my way of thinking about Jesus, my way of, I've given up my, my job. Come on over and, and meet this guy that I just met. Now you might be saying, well, how do I do this practically, right? Jesus isn't here in the flesh. Well, Jesus put the Holy Spirit in you. You are now the house of God, right? When people encounter you, they're encountering a little bit, a piece of the presence of God. But even more so, Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples when what? when we love one another. Well, how, how can people see us love one another as a community of believers if we're never gathering as a community of believers and inviting others in, right? It, can't, it doesn't happen here usually. I mean, you're all sitting in rows. I'm the only one talking. But what about your house? You know, you get a couple of Christian families together. You know, one place it's happening, I see it in the garden happening. I see it on our baseball team, right? 
people coming in and hanging out with us and being a part of what we do. There's probably other places that it's happening, for sure, but we need to expose people to Christian community, small community where they get to see us love each other and experience it. I remember in the Navigators, we used to have a dinner every Thursday night, about maybe you know, anywhere from 20 to 50 of us. And there were these two girls that came in who weren't believers, and they started hanging out, being part of our community. And unsolicited, they, they said to us once, as we're having a discussion about the Bible, they said, you guys really love one another. They said, we don't see this anywhere else on campus. And I was blown away. It was like, that's what Jesus said. They'll know you're my disciples when they see you love one another. Well, they won't see us love one another if we don't invite people in to be part of our smaller communities. That has to happen. So he throws this big party. Verse 30, the Pharisees and the teachers start to whine and complain. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They want to know why Jesus is breaking the rules. Why are you breaking the boundaries? Why are you pushing the envelope? Why are you you being friends with these people? You're slowing down the return of God, the end of exile. You're disrupting the old thinking forms and behavioral patterns that we're so used to. And so Jesus answered them. And I love his answer. It's almost like a mission statement, right? His mission statement is this. I'm a doctor and I can't do my job unless I'm among sick people. Simple. Imagine a doctor who would only associate with healthy people. What kind of doctor is that? He's useless or she's useless. Jesus is a doctor who needs to be among sick people and we're all sick, right? The Pharisees think they're healthy, but they're actually sick, right? We're all sick. And so Jesus says, my job is to to bring healing to those who are sick. And healing is the restoring of relationship with God and his people through Jesus. That's the first step. The next step is then you have the change of thinking, the change of behavior, but it's, it's restoring that relationship. And so Jesus says, I'm crossing the boundaries that you guys have as a way to open the way up for healing to take place in people's lives. And no longer will, be, will people be placed in these, these categories of clean and unclean, of Jew, of Gentile. I'm breaking it all wide open. So then they whine and complain again. They said to him, John's disciples often fast. Can you just hear their voices? Like they're just... But I I have a little bit of sympathy for them because they think they're actually speeding up the return or the end of exile. But they're not, right? But yours go on eating and drinking. So fasting was a sign of of serious commitment, right? And was regarded as essential in preparing for, for their deliverance. So they're fasting because they want God to return. The irony in this whole thing is that Jesus... The thing that they're fasting for is standing right in front of them. They're fasting for the return of God and God's standing right in front of them. I mean, isn't that ironic? And so Jesus answers them and he goes into this this fasting, talks about fasting. He says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? And the answer is no, right? I mean, this is a party. This is, can you imagine going to a wedding and, and fasting, right? And they bring that big, you know, the big roast beef dinner with the little potatoes that I love and the green beans and all that kind of stuff. And they know I'm fasting. <laughs> I mean, you might as well just stay home, right? It's a celebration of life and of, of two lives coming together. So Jesus is saying, you know, 
The kingdom has begun. Forgiveness is, is, is happening. Blind people are starting to see their sight. Right? The, the, the story just before this one is the guy with leprosy, and Jesus goes up and, and he, he touches, talk about belonging, right? Jesus touches him. He didn't have to touch him. He could have just said, you're healed. He touches him, because nobody's probably laid their hands on this guy in who knows how long. And Jesus meets him at his deepest need and brings healing and wholeness to him. Jesus, the kingdom is here. It started. It's time for celebrating, not, not time for fasting. But there is a dark note to this as well. He says, one day the bridegroom will be taken away, and then it will be time to fast again. And so once again, we're in a period of time where we're looking forward to the return of the king. And so it's appropriate to fast and to celebrate because we have the spirit in us, but the work is not yet finished. There's lots of people out there who need to hear the gospel and who need the opportunity to meet Jesus. So then he ends it off with this short parable. He says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, I'll have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. I mean, imagine if I have my nice white shirt, my new white shirt, and I have my old blue shirt, right? And my blue shirt's got a hole in it. So I say, well, I'm gonna cut a patch out of my white shirt and I'm gonna patch my blue shirt. <laughs> like, I mean, the ridiculousness of it, right? We're gonna, first of all, it's gonna uh, white on blue, and then I've also wrecked my new shirt, right? So Jesus isn't saying the old is, is bad. He never says that. He just says the old and the new, we've, it's a fulfillment of what was promised from long ago. Right? Jesus is, is fulfilling what was supposed to happen, and the new is here. There's, there's some things that are different here. May, one of them is the spirit living in us rather than, than in the temple. And then in terms of wineskins, you know, wineskins um, expand. None of us have really done this, or not many of us have done this, right? Uh, but when you pour new wine into a wineskin, it ferments and it expands, and so then the wineskin expands. And, and the old ones have already done the expanding, so if you pour new wine into the old ones, the new wine's gonna want to expand again, but this has lost its flexibility and it's, it's gonna burst. There's gonna be an explosion, right? They can't be stretched any further. And so Jesus is saying, hey, there's new stuff going on here. The age of the spirit has come, right? The age of the temple is over. And you guys need to adopt, to adapt in order to make this new wine fit. The old thought forms and behavioral patterns will not fit into this new reality. But then this comes with a solemn warning. You know, the last verse, it's a bit cryptic, but Jesus says, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. As I've gotten older, you know, those, all those little pithy sayings, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Uh, I mean, there's tons of these things, right? Don't, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? Old habits die hard. I mean, what Jesus is saying here is it's not easy for people to change, to get rid of the old thought forms and patterns and behavioral patterns and adopt the new, right? We want to hold on to that which is familiar, that which is safe, that which is comfortable. So the real challenge 
folks, of this passage is to see where in the world, and of course in the church, people are living today as though the old age was still the norm. As though the new life of the gospel had never burst in on us. And I think we're guilty of that in some significant ways. And if we want to see God use us to change our city, we're going to have to adapt to the new, to the new wine. So I want to suggest a couple of ways in closing in which we as a church still live according to the old thought forms and behavioral patterns of the Old Testament. We're still kind of living with a foot in the Old Testament, right? I've already pointed out one, right? The way that we see this building, the build, nothing wrong with the building, buildings are great, but there's nothing special about this building in terms of God's presence dwelling in the Holy of Holies of, you know, backstage or something. You are the temple. We together collectively are a wall of the new temple that God is building. And we need to think that way in order to have the kind of impact that we want. As I said, it it impacts our view of evangelism. We become a building-centered church, then what we do is we set up programs and we invite people here to experience the programs thinking that we're doing evangelism. And we sort of are. But the real evangelism should be happening out there, not in here. Some of it can happen here, but the majority of it should be happening out there in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your families, as you form little communities throughout the city and start to show people what the love of God looks like in a practical way. That's hugely different than than what we do. Another consequence of this thinking of the, of the, you know, we're in the house of God is we have a come to us instead of a go to them mentality. Right? So we do attractional things. Come. And there's nothing wrong with those things. I'm, I'm not saying that. It's not either or. It's both and. But we're only living in the one reality. We should be shaking this, this city to its foundations with the number of people that we have here and the, and the power that God could unleash through us into our communities. A second area that I think we can learn from in terms of what old thought forms and behavioral patterns we've adopted that we haven't broken out of is I think we're exclusionary instead of inclusive. You know, we send that silent message that you need to belong, you need to fit a certain mold before you you can belong to us. You know, not many of us are like Jesus who deliberately seeks out those who are disliked, who are despised, who are sitting on the margins of society. I'm guilty of that too, right? I mean, man, I went... (laughs) During COVID, I, you know, somebody that I love had, you know, had a, an addiction, serious addiction, and I chased them around the city. And I went into places that just broke my heart. Places that nobody has any business being. And the things that I saw, and I just thought, my goodness, those are the places that Jesus would be going, Right? And we just get so comfortable in our lives, so busy. And I'm not, I'm preaching to me just as much as you. But we're exclusionary instead of include. We need to be out there and 
and, and, and rubbing shoulders with people who are broken and hurt and lost. You know, not many of us are like Levi who threw a party so that his friends could meet Jesus. Like seriously, take a stock of what you, how you use your home. Most of us view our home now as a castle to retreat into to escape the busyness of our lives. If that's the case, slow your life down. Get rid of the periphery stuff that you don't need. It's amazing when, when something happens big, how quick you can clear the deck. My brother was in a car accident in, in, in 2000 that was catastrophic. When I got to the hospital, the doctor said he had a 50-50 chance of making it through the night. He said, do you want to see him? I said, no, where's the, where's the chapel? And I went and I just laid flat down and I prayed for him. Well, I just, everything just disappeared, right? It wasn't, there was nothing that was important anymore except being there for my brother. So a lot of the stuff that you choose to do, to spend your time on, your energy on, a lot of it's just, it's, it's meaningless, right? There's some core things, the tyranny of the urgent. We've succumbed to that. We need to be like Levi, who once he realized who Jesus was and what Jesus was offering, he wanted to invite people to meet him. The other thing I would say, the, the last thing I'll say, is I think we're still living the old thought patterns and behavioral ways. We have this professional and lay divide. The pastors are the professionals. They do all the work. We employ them to do the work. And now our church, I think, is actually is, is pretty decent at volunteerism and all that kind of stuff. But the main job, what we've been hired to do, is to equip you to do acts of service in the community. We're not hired here to, to run all the programs and all the ministries. That's your job. We're, made, we're paid to equip you to do it. Now, we do it too. But pastors are equipping individuals. But we're stuck in kind of the old mentality of the priest, right? Who offered the sacrifices, who did, you know, and, and uh, but remember, the, the promise to Moses is you would be a kingdom of priests. We're all the priesthood of all believers. That was one of the main tenets of the Reformation. We're all priests. We're all called to to go before God and to, and to pray and to plead for those who don't know him and to introduce them to him. We're all called to do the work. And if you're sitting on the sidelines watching us do it, I mean, that's a big miss. I think Nicky Gumbel said, you know, church life is, is like a soccer match. It's 50,000 out of shape people watching 20 people on the pitch who are in desperately need of a rest. Right? We don't want to be a church like that. And I don't think we are. I think we do a fairly good job of, of volunteering. But we need to be out in the community, out in our, in our, in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in the places where people are hurting, doing ministry. And our job is to equip you to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we apologize that oftentimes we've lived in old ways of thinking, in old patterns of behavior. Oftentimes the Holy Spirit has become the forgotten part of the Trinity, and yet he lives in each of our hearts, individually and collectively. 
And so, Lord, we pray that we would make room. We'd be open. We wouldn't be an old dog who can't learn a new trick, that we'd be open to acknowledging that you have, have begun a work that's different than the old, that does away with classifications and is not exclusionary. And we pray that we would be not only open to that, but we would fully embrace it like Levi did, and that we would want others to know you and to, to discover you so that they can enjoy eternal life as well, that we wouldn't hoard it to ourselves, but we would extend it out to our neighbors and our the people that are out in the, in the streets that are hurting and in need of you. And we ask that for your namesake. Amen. I hope I wasn't too hard on you this morning. I, um, you know, the goal in, in talking about hard truths like this is that we change and we become the people that God has called us to be. And we don't want to get to the end and realize, hey, we were living in these old patterns when we should have been living in the new. And I think in a lot of ways we're doing really good as a, as a local church, and there's some ways that we need to improve. And so I leave you with this. In, in Acts, after Jesus rises from the dead, he meets with his disciples, and he tells them to wait, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. Right, that's each and every one of us. If the Holy Spirit has come on you, you've received power. And to what end? Why do we have this power? So that you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? God has called us to be partners with him in witnessing. So I exhort you today to go and to tap into the power that you already have. You just may need to turn on the faucet and acknowledge that, oh, man, it's there, and then to be that witness that God has called you to be. Go in peace, amen.